All right. All things new. All things new. Man, I do not know about you guys, but I have just been absolutely loving this series so far. It's been crazy good. And I have the uh, responsibility and the privilege of this morning uh, talking to us a little bit about how God might want to make things new for us on the cusp of some kingdom growth and how we might need to have our perspectives renewed a little bit. And so I'm really, really, really looking forward to that. But before we get there, can we just take a few moments and recap, just kind of recalibrate where we've been for these last few weeks. So week one, Joel opened the series for us, unpacking the deep significance of the letter to the Philippians as we read it in the book of Revelation. How God wants to make all things new and stable and durable by his recreative hand, making us pillars in the temple of God. And then in week two, Nathan unpacked the story of Abraham, and he helped us see how the very same God who called Abraham to a new land is calling us out to be a people of bold, audacious faith, recreating what his people actually look like in this world. And then in week three, Austin, he took us through the story of Samson to show us that God is thankfully never done with us, regardless of our past. He is always calling us unto himself. He is the God of new beginnings. And then weeks four and five, Joel took a few weeks to help us understand that this newness of life, the life that Jesus himself modeled for us, is not one that we are being driven towards, but one that we are being called towards, right? We respond to his love, and that love draws us to live and love those around us in radically different ways. And then finally, last week, Jeremy helped us see how the cravings for newness, you know, that new phone, that new job, that new relationship, they are intended to be pointers, rather, to the newness of life that Christ offers us, not satisfying ends in and of themselves. And he showed us how the Apostle Paul talked about that in the second letter to the Corinthians. So check us out. I did all that basically for this. I really, it was really important, but here's the point. I, I love this. I hope you catch that. We started at the end of the book, week one, in Revelation. And then we skipped back to the beginning of the book, week two, in Genesis. And then we spent a little bit of time in the Old Testament book of Judges. And then we hopped and spent a good amount of time in the New Testament Gospels. And then last week we spent a little bit of time in the epistles, the letters of the, the New Testament in Corinthians. Guys, are you seeing this? This has basically been a, a, a biblical survey course that we've been taking over the last seven weeks. I am so, so grateful to be a part of a church community that values and that spends time in the word and that knows that God is still speaking to us today from these physical pages and from the digital pages as well. That God's word is still active and speaking through his Holy Spirit. He breathes new life. So today we're gonna take a look at yet another text from the Bible, the book that is commonly known as the Acts of the Apostles or often just Acts. Essentially, Acts reads like a biography of the very early church, kind of like the Gospels read like a biography of Jesus. Now, many people would say that, uh, some scholars would argue that Acts is actually kind of more of a biography of the Holy Spirit, um, but that might be an unnecessary or unhelpful distinction. Because really, church, what makes the church the church is the very presence of the Holy Spirit among us. Uh, that is the thing that dis differentiates us from 
a political party or from a hobby group or uh, from a Costco membership. It's the Holy Spirit that we center around. It's the Holy Spirit that defines our borders, but also it's the Holy Spirit that empowers us to drive outwards and to expand his kingdom here. So we're going to take a look. The, the book of Acts gives us this in a grand story by giving us a bunch of little stories. And today we're going to take a look at one such little story. It's in Acts chapter 6 and uh, verses 1 through 7 is what we're looking for. So if you have your Bible today, you want to scroll there, you want to flip there. Acts chapter 6 uh, verses 1 through 7. Uh, Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament, right after the book of John and right before Romans. Um, before we read this passage, though, let me give us just a little recap of how we got to where we got to in the book of Acts, because it's a, it's, a, it's a big story. So about 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth had a very visible, although very brief, public ministry in the area of Palestine. He was, as the church believes, God among us. And many people followed him, but there were 12 men who ended up being rather close, his inner circle of sorts. We often refer to them through the Gospels as his disciples. They were eyewitnesses to not only his teaching, but also to his amazing miracles, to his brutal death, and thank God, to his miraculous resurrection. Um, not long after Jesus rose from the dead, he gathered his disciples together and he gave them a mission. He co-missioned them to spread his good news progressively outwards from Palestine to the ends of the earth. And in this process, to make disciples who would make more disciples who would make more disciples. And they were to do this by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. We read in detail how this happens in the second chapter of Acts, the story that we commonly know as Pentecost, no longer merely God among us, but now also God within us. In one day, the number of those who were baptized, plug baptism, who were baptized into the church, 3,000. That's a big day. And the church became a network of close-knit communities meeting regularly in homes and sharing their lives together in meaningful ways, plug small groups. Uh, the Holy Spirit continues to be evident in the life of the church, and the disciples continue to shout out the good news that Jesus Christ is king. And they do this even when it gets them in trouble, mind you. And then miracles happen, and the church continues to grow. We get up above 5,000, and we're rolling, and we're rolling, and then we hit chapter 6. Chapter 6. So let's read chapter 6, the first part, together now. Now, during those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the 12 called together the whole community of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Therefore, friends, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task, while we, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and to serving the word. And what they said pleased the whole community. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, together with Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. They had these men stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. The word of God continued to spread. The number of the disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now this is a relatively short 
section of scripture in Acts. And if you've ever read Acts before, which if you haven't, I would encourage you to do, let's, let's be honest, this is, almost, this is almost skimmable. You know what I mean? You're just kind of... Because you are seeing stories of shipwrecks, you are seeing amazing miracles happen, people are being released from prison, there are these like epic sermons back to back, and then you have these seven verses that kind of sound like middle management's happening. And so you kind of, you're going by the way, I want you to take, to take a look with me today and pay attention because I actually believe that what we're seeing here is a crucial turning point in the life of the early church. And I'm actually really excited to be able to share it with you. I'm really excited, and if I can be transparent, I'm like, I'm like a little bit nervous. Um, I'm, a, I'm a little, eh, I'm a little nervous. And the reason I'm a little nervous is because I'm, I'm going to make three observations, three, three kind of keys to what we see here. I'm, I'm, I didn't mean to do it this way, I promise, but they ended up being three eyes. Three eyes. It's nice. Um, and the first two, I think you're going to love. I think you're going to love the first two. They're going to be encouraging. You're going to be like, yes, I feel great about this. This is good. And it's just this third one. It's just this, the third point I'm a, little bit, I'm a little bit afraid of. I'm a little bit afraid of what it might mean. Because I personally have been wrestling with it for, for the last number of weeks. And I'm still trying to come to terms, to be honest, with what it means for me and what it might mean for us. And I don't, I don't want to put my words in place of God's words, and I don't want to put you off this morning. So can I pray just really quick? Can I pray for this? Father, thank you for the fact that you offer the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, thank you for the fact that you will be with even someone like me. And in this moment, Lord, would you please speak your words into these words. May our hearts be open, and may we be one as you are one. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Okay, so boom, that's done. Three, three eyes. Three eyes. Uh, first one, prioritize. Prioritize. Don't elevate the essential. Don't elevate the good over the essential. Don't elevate the good over the essential. If you've got your Bible in front of you, you can take a look at verse two. It says, it is not right, this is the apostles talking here, say, it is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Now, if you're looking at various translations, there's definitely some disagreement on what we're talking about here, this so-called waiting on tables. But for now, the point to draw out, I think, will be clear enough. The apostles, who were the leaders of the church at this point, they had an awareness that it was somehow not what they were called to do. It wasn't their main thing. Was it a bad thing? No, clearly not, as we'll soon see. But it wasn't, for some reason, the main thing. But this is a turning point in the life of the apostles, and so it's a turning point for the church. They realized that saying yes to good things cannot come at the cost of saying no to the main thing. Now, there's a host of very, very positive things that a church can do. And I could easily take the rest of our time here this morning saying just a sampling of some of the very, very positive things that you as a church do. ESL classes, Harvest House Ministry, More for Moms, Small Group Outreach, honestly, a bare sampling, just a fraction. This is a very biblical way of expressing our faith. The writer of the book of James uh, says in, in uh, chapter 2, verse 18, 
Someone will say, hey, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Good deeds, church, are non-negotiable. But here's the rub. Good deeds are not what make us a church. They are what validate us as a church, but they are not what makes us a church. What makes us a church is the ministry of the word of God fueled and directed by the tangible presence of the Holy Spirit in our midst. And if we ever allow the good to squeeze out the essential, then we forego our status as a church. And it has happened, but it will not happen here. And I've been trying to rack my brain over the last little while to figure out uh, kind of a personal example from home life, how, uh, how I could bring this home. Now, if your mornings are anything like mine, which they, they probably are, uh, you will end up having a scenario where you've got about three minutes left before you have to be out the door or you're going to be late for work again. Uh, so, you're, you know, you've, you've, you haven't brushed your teeth yet. There are breakfast dishes on the table. Your phone is just blowing up with text messages that really seem like they're important, but, but you're not yet wearing pants. You know? Start with the pants. Everything else, everything else can wait. More to the serious side of things, though. Um, we have, you know, we're, we're being told we have to live a balanced life. Everywhere you turn, balanced life. Mind, body, and soul, you have to balance these things together. So we know that this means carving out space for all these different kinds of things. Exercise, eating right, time with family and friends, etc., etc. But we as Christians, I mean, we know we know that the time in contemplation and prayer is the essential part of our lives. It's a non-negotiable, right? I mean, we have to do that both privately and in the context of groups like church and small groups. We have to be praying. And, and yet, if you're honest, a lot of us, it seems so easy to allow good things to squeeze out the essential things. And we cannot let that happen. We cannot prioritize the good at the cost of the essential. We got to prioritize. Number two, we have to missionalize. You can't do it all, but we can. Now, the church in Jerusalem at this point was growing. Let's look at verse three. The apostles say, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task. The church was about 5,000 people at this point. Now to me, it almost kind of sounds like the apostles, the 12 of them are trying to keep the plates spinning themselves, which is pretty wild, really, uh, for a dozen dudes who are not exactly born into leadership, as their biographies would suggest. It's very clear that as it says in Acts 4.13, uh, these men had been with Jesus. They were highly effective and the church was going forward. But the, the, the question isn't whether or not they could maintain what they were doing at that point. The question is, were they ready for where God wanted to take things next? An interesting thing happens 
in the text at this point, and it might not show up. It kind of depends upon how you, how you read it or how your translations are. But as far as I can tell, this is the first place in the book of Acts where the word for disciple starts to be applied to people other than the 12 apostles. Up to this point, the main word for members of the church would have been something like believers, ones who believe in Jesus. Now we know belief in Christ is central to being a Christian and central to being a part of the church. This is a non-negotiable. We just talked about this a second. You can't allow the good to squeeze out the essential. But Jesus himself was constantly telling people not only to believe in him, but to follow him. And here at the beginning of the church, we see the community starting to come to the realization that for this world-changing mission to be accomplished, those who have found his love and his mercy and grace will need to make sure that they don't settle for just bare belief without accompanying action. The shift is subtle, but it's seismic. When we read through how it's described, in fact, it's possible that we might even feel a little bit underwhelmed by their actions. A church of 5,000, and they end up elevating seven men into leadership. Wow, that's great. As with so many things in Scripture, though, the actions and the words themselves are important in and of themselves Yes, but they're also very, very important in the trajectory that they point towards, the direction that they're taking. And I think we're going to see in just a few moments that this trajectory and this direction is very, very important. There's a hymn of praise that, that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 3, 20 and 21, it says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and forever. Do you see that? To his power that is at work within us. God is bringing his kingdom come, and he intends to do it through the Church, you can't do it. I can't do it. Not even Pastor Joel, as amazing as he is, can do it. But we, with the Holy Spirit, can do everything that he's called us to. Now, this is a strange season that we are in. There is no question. Nobody's going to try to hide that from you. Virtually every ministry that our church has looks different in practice than it did six months ago. Not just in practice, but also by the people who are practicing it. Our volunteer base is changing. People are coming. People are going. It's, we're all trying to get our bearings. And this is not going to be an infomercial this morning for your opportunities to serve at Moncton Wesleyan. Although, if you have any questions, I'm happy to answer them. I will say, it's not important to me, to be quite honest, where you're serving. But it is vitally important to me and to us that you're serving. This is an all-hands-on-deck scenario. If you are a believer in Christ, it's time to move from just being a believer to being a follower. And so if you have any questions, if you'd like to engage with that topic at all, this is for people who are in the room, people who are online, people who are in Moncton, people are, who are wherever. If you go to mw.church serve, mw.church serve, we will have a conversation. It'd be good. We have to prioritize, and listen, we have to missionalize. Third, though, 
We have to empathize. We have to, we have to prioritize. We have to missionalize. We have to empathize. And if you could see it on the screen, I'm not sure if you can. I have this weird kind of weird kind of word. Sometimes you got to mean not to. Sometimes you got to mean not to. And I don't mean empathize. So stick with me, because this is the part. This is the part, guys, that I was kind of like, kind of breathing breathing heavy this morning, thinking about this this part here. And so I'm just gonna stick with me, okay? We read it earlier, but again, I said these are words that we can skim by pretty fast. What, what do you think was the issue that the early church needed to resolve in this passage? What was the issue? Commentators, people who spent a lot of time studying the book of Acts, would say that this is the third in a series of three cycles where we see an issue, a resolution, and then church growth. There's a problem, they solve it, and the church goes boom. Issue, resolution, growth. We just talked about the resolution. And then we can see, if we look in verse 7, what the growth is. The number of the disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem. Listen, they gave us numbers before. They gave us the number 3,000, then they gave us 5,000. We've moved to greatly. Things are going up. The number of the disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Guys, the priests were essentially, at this point in time, representatives of the systems that were trying to hold the Jesus movement back. I mean, the borders were breaking wide open here. This was a huge time of growth. We see the growth. We know the resolution. But what was the issue? The issue is back in verse 1. During those days when the disciples were increasing in number, growth brings its own problems, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. Now, as I alluded to earlier, there's a lot of uncertainty surrounding exactly what the nature of the daily distribution of food might be. And if you're interested, we can chat about that at some point. But there's near consensus, really, across the board, not just with scholars, but even if you read church tradition all the way back to the second century. There's almost consensus across the board as to who these two groups were who were in conflict. We know from the rest of the book of Acts that by this time, the church was composed primarily, if not exclusively, of Jewish men and women who had come to believe that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. All 12 disciples were Jewish. Those who were present at Pentecost in Jerusalem were almost certainly largely Jewish. We're still four chapters away from Acts chapter 10 where Cornelius, who was a Gentile or a non-Jew, makes the leap into the faith. And so the two groups here that we're talking about are certainly Jewish, and yet they're separated in some way. How? The Hellenists and the Hebrews. The church lets us know that the Hellenists were Jewish people whose primary language was Greek. Helen of Troy, Hellenization. They spoke Greek. And the Hebrews, their primary language was Aramaic, which was basically a kind of a version, a more modern version of Hebrew. Now, if you're familiar at all with the Old Testament story, you'll know that there's a couple of times where the Jewish people either voluntarily or involuntarily left their homeland kind of en masse and went to various places. And when they laid roots in other places, they would end up living there and thriving there. It was very much the case to the point where there are thriving Jewish communities all over the world today. And one such, just as an example, one such would have been in Alexandria, Egypt, um, where there, is, there was at the time of Jesus a huge uh, Jewish community there. 
the native language in Greece, as in much of the known world at that point in time, was Greek. You knew it. You knew it was Greek. And so very often, though, even though Jer Jerusalem was still these, their spiritual home in some ways, and just like today, it was not uncommon for people to move from major metropolitan centers back and forth. And so there was a, a lot of what they would call diaspora Jews, people who lived outside of Jerusalem but who were very, very Jewish. They no doubt, the best reconstruction is that they were moving back to Jerusalem and they spoke primarily Greek and they had come to believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah and now they were being enfolded into the church. And though there were enough of them to have a community within the church, they were not in the majority because the majority were the Hebrews, those who spoke Aramaic, those who had been born and bred, if you like, in Jerusalem. So, just to recap here really quickly, both groups were ethnically Jewish, and they both believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but they were just culturally dissimilar enough to allow the seeds of disunity into their midst. So here's the question. Do you think the apostles, who were themselves Aramaic speakers and thus in the majority, do you think they intended to overlook the needs of the Hellenists? Did they, did they mean to? Quite likely not. But and this is where the, the phrase comes in. It seems that they didn't mean not to. I say this with my, my kids all the time. I'm sorry that they're in the room today. But uh, much to their chagrin, you know, they'll end up hurting themselves. They'll hurt somebody else or they'll break something. And the words that will kind of reflexively come out of their mouth is, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. And I, I you know, I, I try to forgive and I try to rush to all the good things. But I can't help myself. I say, oh, yes, of course you didn't mean to. But did you mean not to? We've been down this road before. We know how these things turn out. Did you did you mean not to do it? This is a moment in the life of the early church where they learned an incredibly valuable lesson that we need to make sure that we do not forget. That being in the majority can blind you to the needs and the perspectives of those who are not in the majority, of those who either speak a different language or who come from a different cultural background or whose personal histories have shaped their worldview to look just a little bit different than our own. Here, the church decided to prioritize, they decided to missionalize, and they decided to empathize, to do the hard work of throwing off their blinders and seeing things through the eyes of the other, a gift, a gift that they could only truly accomplish by seeing things through the eyes of Jesus Christ. So why today? Why am I spending this time with these seven verses? Why does it matter? Here's why. Here's why it matters. I believe, church, I believe that we are on the cusp of an era of significant growth. And I don't just mean Moncton Wesleyan Church. I don't. I mean the church in Atlantic Canada and the church around the world is on the edge of major breakthrough, if we can maintain our priorities, if we can encourage and empower each other, 
to all consider ourselves not only believers in Jesus, but followers of Jesus. And if we can remain united around our common center, then I truly believe that God will expand his kingdom come in unprecedented ways in this area to match the unprecedented times that we live in. And if you, like me, if you, like me, believe that the spirit-empowered mission of the church actually matters in the face of hopelessness, that it actually matters in the face of addiction, that it actually matters in the face of mental health struggles and in the face of injustice and sickness and death and eternity, that it is crucial, it is crucial that we learn the lessons of the past and that we do not waste any time in prioritizing, in missionalizing, and in empathizing. And I believe that we have to mean not to be blind. We have to mean not to to be blind to those who are around us. Yes, this means those who have yet to be reached by the gospel of Jesus Christ. But but what this text is actually showing us is that this is actually an issue within the church even before it becomes an issue outside the church. Let me give you, if you'll allow me, an example from my very recent past. Did you know that we have had a thriving deaf ministry here for almost 50 years, for five decades, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, we've had volunteers who have been willing to literally stand in the gap and to translate for people who are hard of hearing, but who are valued and who are able to worship God and be an active part of our church community. It's absolutely wonderful. In fact, would you do me a favor this morning and applaud those people who have done that? There are people who have learned sign language, not, they, they, they had no reason to know it themselves. They learned it to be a part of that ministry. It's glorious. When things abruptly went online in March, uh, online only in March, um, we were blessed with the ability to be able to pivot pretty fast. It was nice. Um, and we were even able to, thank God, get many of our sermons, our teachings, to be transcribed so that there's text on the bottom thirds so that people can read along with it. And so I thought, hey, this is great. We're maintaining ministry. Uh, not long ago, I was at Beulah Campground with some other pastors doing something, and uh, one, of the, one of the pastors from Fredericton said that they had to get back quick because they were going to go film um, somebody who was going to be doing overdubs for their sign language for their service. And I kind of, I uh, hope it wasn't arrogantly, but I kind of said, oh, well, you know, we've got, we've got overdubs for ours, so it seems to work out pretty well. And he was very kind and gracious, and he applauded us and the fact that we have that. But then he also very gently informed me that if, if those who are deaf uh, were born deaf instead of becoming deaf uh, as adults, then statistically speaking, it's actually unlikely that they would be able to read uh, the content of a sermon very well because their native language is not English, it's American Sign Language. And I kind of just like stared blindly for like, 30 seconds probably before I could figure out what to say because I thought I knew but I didn't know maybe you knew that good for you I didn't know that I didn't know but you know what that's not surprising it's not surprising that I didn't know the amount of things that I don't know could fill this room 10 times over I know virtually nothing about astrophysics 
I know virtually nothing about international economies. And I know virtually nothing about the overwhelming majority of you who have been tracking along with me today. And yet, and yet, I am quick. I am lightning quick to jump to conclusions about why you look the way you look, why you say the things you say, why you act the way you act, and check this, why you post the things you post. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but am I alone today? Lord have mercy, the apostles knew nothing about Facebook. I hope I still have you here with me. Honestly, I do. But I hope, I, I pray that you hear the Father's heart in these moments. Not my words, not my character, not my own desires or perspectives. Because I truly, I truly believe that we, are, that we are poised on the edge of a season where a huge number of people could find the hope and holiness of Jesus Christ for the first time. And that his love could change everything, could change everything in their lives. And that it's so important. But here's the thing. People don't find Jesus, even though it might seem like it, they don't find Jesus in isolation. They don't. They find Jesus in the church. And I don't mean the building, y'all, but I do mean the community. And how are we going to talk to the world about the love of God if we're talking trash about each other online and on the street? Yeah, I guess I'm going to do this. Okay. So, uh, I genuinely love the fact, I, 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 from the bottom of my heart, I love the fact that in this church community, that in three weeks when we go to the polls, there are people who are going to be voting blue, and there are people who are going to be voting red, and that because this is Canada and there's like eight other colors, there's going to be some purple and some green and some orange in there. I actually genuinely love that. I love the fact that in this church community there are people who think that it is both safe and wise to wear masks when they're in public. And I love the fact that there are people who think that it is neither helpful nor wise. I love that. I love the fact that there are people in this church community who are hesitant about vaccines. And I love the fact that there are people who are eager. And just to make sure I mention every hot button issue that I possibly can. Let me just say the words, systemic racism, Joe Biden and Donald Trump, just to make sure that you all feel as uncomfortable as I feel in this moment. I am not saying that our belief in Jesus should not guide our actions. I very much believe that it should. But what, what I am saying, and hear this, please hear this, what I'm saying is that I am so deeply appreciative of the fact that this is a church community whose center is neither politics nor preference, but presence, the very presence of the living God in our midst. Church, this community doesn't come easy. It is free, but it doesn't come easy. The enemy is trying to sow all the division. But the prayer that Christ prayed for us in John 17, it is still in play, church. He prayed that all of those who believe in me may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I'm in you. May they also be in us 
that the world may believe that you have sent me, united as one that the world might believe. Guys, we have to mean not to. We have to mean not to be unkind to those who disagree with us. We have to mean not to be blind to the perspectives and needs of those around, around us. Sometimes we have to mean not to. We have to prioritize, we have to missionalize, and we have to empathize. On the edge of this kind of kingdom come boom, we cannot afford, we cannot afford to sleep on these things. Our community is too important. Guys, our families are too important. God's word is too important. Would you, would you stand with me if you're in the room this morning? I'd invite you at home as well, wherever you are, if you'd like to stand. If you don't want to stand, that's fine. If you're not able to stand, that's fine. But listen, you don't have to, but you can just shift your position this morning. I want you to shift. I want you to change a little bit because I want you to focus in you to open yourself up to what God might be saying to you in this moment. I think this is so beautiful how God worked this out. Last week, Jeremy gave us this little prayer. Just a few words. Lord, give me eyes to see as you see. And that's the word this morning. That's it. Lord, give me eyes to see as you see. Open my eyes to see you. Because as we see Jesus more clearly, as we behold his beauty, and as we see the God and the man who is willing to lay down absolutely all of his preferences and all of his rights and put it all aside for me and for you and for us, as we see him more clearly, then it changes the way that we see ourselves. And it changes the way that we see other people. And it changes everything. Just pray for us today. God, you're so good. God, in these next few moments, may you, may you speak to each of us individually where we are for the building up of this church and for the building up of your kingdom to come. May you open our eyes to see you more clearly. And in doing so, would you help us to see where we need to move next, what we are blind to? Lord, would you help us to see the ways that we might need to prioritize our own personal lives? Would you show us how we actually do have time? Would you, would you reveal that this morning, today, that there is time for the essential? There's always time for the essential. Lord, would you, would you show us how we are all called to be a part of your mission, that it is no longer and that it never was enough to just believe, but that the actions that we have must be based in and flow out of the belief that you have poured into us through the Holy Spirit. And Lord, would you mobilize this church to be ready for what's next? And God, in this moment, for me, for me and for everyone who feels like me, would you help us, God, to truly empathize with those who are different than us in so many ways and yet are same in the way that matters most, created in your image and called for your purpose. 
one. Lord, could you help us to be one as you are one? Open our eyes to see as you see.